everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, the rules of war and victory for God's people. Deuteronomy 2, 9 through 3, 11 and Exodus 34, 10 through 17. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to livethroughjesus.com and sign up to receive your free five-week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. So, how do you feel about war? Are you one of the people that thinks we should never, ever fight no matter what? Or are you one of the people that believe, yes, kill all the bad guys, every single one, spare no people? Or do you fall somewhere in between? When my son was little and my husband would be watching a movie and he would come in on the middle of it, he would always say, is he a bad guy or a good guy? As a kid and in the movies, There's always a clear-cut good guy and bad guy. Then as we become adults, we start to see it's not quite that simple. We like to think that most people are good. And even if they do bad things, they have a reason for it and probably deserve some understanding. But if you really think about it on the world stage, there are bad guys. There are real evil people. You think back to history, you look at Hitler, Stalin, people that are horrible, that kill their own people. And in the Bible, it's the same way. God looks at innocence in a little bit different way than we do. And so this thought of everyone is is good and we should just give them the benefit of the doubt, that's what we think. But today we're going to look at how God sees war and the battles that the Israelites face. So let's just go ahead and dive into this lesson. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of clarity if you're on the fence, especially about going to war in the first place. Now, We've been talking about the Israelites and their journey into the promised land. And the promised land is already inhabited by some people. And so they're going to encounter battles when they get there because they're supposed to dispossess all of these people and live in this land. This is God's plan for them. Stick with me to the end. If <laughs> if you start feeling, I don't like this, I don't want to talk about this, stick with me to the end. And so... We're following them on their journey to the promised land. And right now they're not in it, but they're going to have a few battles before they even get there. So this is Deuteronomy 2, 9 to verse 23. In Deuteronomy, Moses is explaining what has already happened, but he gives a better overview of it than they do in Numbers. And so we're not going to read the Numbers passages today because they're a little more detailed. And so I'll summarize that. And Moses is basically summarizing that here in Deuteronomy, reminding the people of all the things that God has done for them before they do actually go into the promised land. 
Here's what he's saying. The Israelites were continuing to travel around Edom and they had settled in the valley of Zered. And this is between the land of Edom and the land of Moab. And so I want to explain to you what these places are. The land of Edom is Esau's land. And remember, Esau was a descendant of Abraham. He was actually Abraham's grandson. And so God had given a piece of land to Esau and they were not allowed to touch that land. So they're in between that land and the land of Moab. Now, the land of Moab was given to Lot's descendants. Remember, Lot was uh, Abraham's nephew. And Moab was Lot's son. When Lot left the land of Sodom, he left with his two daughters and his wife. And his wife was punished for looking back and she died. And so it was just him and his two daughters. Their husbands wouldn't come with them. And so the daughters decided, um, what if we don't find any men to have any children with? And so they got their father drunk, each of them one night, and each of them was with their father and had a son with their father. And even though these circumstances are horrible and wrong and not the way that God intended for it to be, those two boys, uh, Ben Ami and Moab, uh, were Lot's children. And because God loved Abraham and Lot, he was also giving land to Lot's children. And so this land of Moab is where they are settled now. They're settled in the land of in the valley of Zered, between the land of Edom, which is Esau's family, and the land of Moab, which is Lot's uh, son's family. So they're settled in this land, and God tells them, you know, you can't have any of this land. And then he says, cross over the brook of Zered and keep traveling, because I've given the land of Ar to Lot's descendants. It had been 38 years since they had left Egypt at this time. And all of the people who had been of the age of war, whenever they were supposed to go into the promised land the first time, all of the people that were the age of war had turned it down. They were too afraid to go in. And so God uh, wouldn't allow them to go in and told them they would wander around in the desert until they died and their children would go in. And so all of those men have passed away now. And it's been 38 years since their fathers had been in Kadesh Barnea, which is where they had just left from. And now they're crossing over this brook. And then they camp around the Arnon River. And now they are between the land of Moab and Ammon. So these are both Lot's children. So they're right there in between the land that God has given to each of Lot's children, to the son of Moab and the son of Ben-Ami, which is Ammon. And so they're settled in this place. And in Numbers, it tells us that they had a book of wars and they explain when they had their battles around this area and they sing songs and they record those songs of praise to God in the book of wars when they are in this place. And when they find the well that they get all of their water from and they name that place Bayer, which means well. 
So they sing songs of praise at those two places and they record those in the book of wars. That's really all that is in the numbers passage that's not in this passage, right? We're just setting the stage now for the Israelites battle by reminding the people, not only you cannot touch these three places, Edom, which is Sair, and Ammon, and Moab, but also by telling them this again, God is reminding them, hey, there were people that were living in their land before I gave it to them, just as there are people living in the promised land right now. And I gave them this land and there were giants living in that land. And I'm now going to give you the land that I promised to you. And so this is supposed to remind the people of God's power and show them that he has the power to give to them all that he is promising and that he's already done it for the other descendants of Abraham. And so this should just be a quick lesson to us. Whenever God reveals his power to us to praise him like they did in their songs and to let it give us courage to go in and fight, to do the things that God's asking us to do and trust him for that victory. That's what he's trying to do with the Israelites. So I just want to read you two passages about that. The first one is found in 2 Samuel 22. 26 through 28. And it says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. God does. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. So, God reveals himself to us in the ways that we can understand. That's what it's saying. And so God is always going to show himself to us. He's always going to be able to let us see him if we're looking for him. And then Psalm 19, 1 through 9 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So this is just continuing to say God reveals himself to us. He proves himself, his existence through all of these different ways. By showing himself merciful, by showing himself to the humble, all of the things that it listed in that. And then he also reveals himself through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So he's saying the day and the night, just all that God has created, those are all things that are speaking, declaring his existence. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voices go out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like the bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So all of these things are declaring who God is, that he's perfect, that he's true, that he's pure, that he's clean. All of the ways that the world is set up reveal him to us. And when we see God, whenever he shows himself merciful to us, whenever he reveals his purity to us, whenever we see his commands and they come through for us, whenever we look at his creation and we say somebody had to make that, then he is proving himself to us. And when he proves his power, his ability, his faithfulness, his love, his care for us through the sun and the moon and the stars and all of the things that he's given to us, then we should be praising him like they did. And it should give us um, courage to place our faith in him because we see what he's already done for us and we know that he can continue to do more for us. And that's what he's doing for the Israelites now. He's saying, look what I've already done for my people. How much more will I do for y'all who I've chosen as my, as my special people that I've decided to give this land to? How much more will I do for you? So I just wanted us to stop right now, just before we move on to the, the dark part of this, all of the war, and just show that God is faithful and he's constantly proving himself to us. And we just need to be aware of what he shows us about himself and how he's taking care of us so that we can continue to have faith in him. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and continue reading in Deuteronomy 2 verses 24 and 25 and he says rise up set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon behold I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land begin to take possession and contend with him in battle this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on all the people who are under the whole heavens who shall hear the report of you and tremble and be in anguish because of you so He's revealed to them what he has already done for Esau and Lot's children. And now he says, it's your turn. Start going in and you're going to have your first battle to possess land. We already talked about another battle that they had had and had victory. But this is their first battle where they're going to take over the land of that area. And so he says, go ahead and cross over the Arnon River. And I'm going to give you the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon. And he says, I'm going to begin to put the fear and dread of you in all the people. Everyone is going to know that I am your God and I'm fighting for you. And if they're against me, then they're against you and they will not win anymore. This is going to be... Deuteronomy 2.26 all the way to 3.11. This is the two battles that they have. So the Israelites were just a few miles north of the Ammon River on the eastern edge of the Ammonites land. And God told them to cross over that river and go into the land of Sihon. 
And instead of just immediately going to battle, they asked Sihon if they could pass through his land. And he said, no. And it tells us here that the reason he said no is because God hardened his heart and made him obstinate against the Israelites. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So just keep that in your mind and we'll talk about it here in a moment. And so he fought against them and the Israelites won. And it says that they killed all the people, all the animals, defeated all the cities, and then took possession of that land and began to occupy. And this land extends from the Arnon River on the south, which is at the border of Moab. So Moab is on the southern end. And remember, they didn't touch it. And so they're on this river and they have defeated all of the land north of Moab all the way to the Jabbok River. And then the land of Ammon is to their east. And remember, they couldn't touch that. And the the Red Sea and the Jordan River is to their west. And that is where the promised land is beyond that. So they have conquered the land just east of Jordan River right now. After they've conquered all of that land, God says, okay, cross over the Jabbok River and begin going north and defeat the, the people north of the Jabbok River, just as you did the people of the south of it. So they're going to get all of this land that goes all the way up to the mountainous regions. And so basically their land stops south uh, at Moab because they can't take that land and east because of Ammon because they can't have that land. And then right now they're not going to get the land west of the Jordan River. That is for later. And so they're going to get all of this land um, from Moab all the way up into the mountains. And so that is all of those places that they were describing. And so they go in, they fight against Og, the king of Bashan, and they defeat him and all of his territory. And this was a bigger territory than what they had before. So God let them start with the smaller area and the easier victory to build their confidence. And now they're going in and they're defeating 60 cities that are well fortified, that have bars and gates and all of these things. And they defeated all of them. And again, killed every person living there and took the possessions for themselves and began to possess this land. And it says that the king of Og was the last of the Rephaim, the last of the giants. And then it describes how big this man was. And it says that his coffin was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. Now, he probably had some possessions buried with him, but still, this is a huge man. And so he's saying, remember, you know that this man was big because he was buried in, what's the name of that place? Rabba, which is the capital city now of present day Jordan. And so he says, you know that he was buried there and his coffin is 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. So remember, he was a giant and they defeated him and he was the last of the giants living in that land. And so it's just, again, reminding the people, like, look at everything that God has done for you. In Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding them, you have defeated these people on the eastern side of the Jordan, 
and look what God did for you there. And now he's sending you into the western side of the Jordan River and he's going to do the same thing for you there. So the common theme here is that look what God's already done for you so that you can have courage to go in and do the next thing that he's asking you to do. Fight the next battle. And so that's the same again for us. Every time we face some difficult situation in our lives, we need to be able to remember, I can do this with God's help. He's helped me before, and I know he's going to help me again. It may not be exactly the way we want it to be. We may have to fight the battle. Notice they're having to fight. They're not just walking in. The people aren't just dying in front of them. God is making them fight. And sometimes the battle is short and sometimes the battle is long, but they always have victory over that. And God wants us to know the same thing. And hopefully in the beginning of our Christian life, he gives us small battles that we are able to easily win with his help so that we can see and build up our courage for the bigger battles that are ahead. Sometimes it doesn't happen like that. Sometimes we fight the the hardest ones first because when we lean on God in those and we see what he's done for us in those, we can easily go in and fight the next battle because if it can't be as hard as the last, right? So sometimes it goes like that. But anytime that we have seen God do something for us, even if it's just something really small, remember in... um. In 2 Samuel, it says that God shows himself merciful to the merciful and blameless to the blameless and pure to the pure people. But also with the crooked people, he makes himself seem torturous. So when we see him even just show us some sort of mercy or whenever we see him reveal his perfection to us or his purity to us or whenever we just get some common grace of this life, of the creation that he's given to us when he gives us rain or um, when he takes the rain away. Anything that God does for us that's even teeny tiny, he's revealing himself to us and that should remind us of his love and care for us and help us be able to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that may be difficult that we may need to rely on him for. That's the common theme throughout this whole thing. We, we're talking about war and some of these things are difficult, but the real lesson here is not about war and the, the rules of engagement there. The real lesson is God fights our battles with us. He may not fight them for us all the time, but he fights them with us. And so no matter how small or how large, Once he's done that for us, it gives us the courage to do it again and do it again and do it again. And so I want to read a couple of verses about that. Things that will remind us that God does help us fight our battles and that he is able to help us overcome. If God hasn't helped us and shown us through our own lives, then he's telling us here the things that he can do. This is John 16, 32 and 33. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come 
when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's telling them, I'm about to die, and you're about to be scattered. Things are about to get difficult. And I'm telling you this because I want you to know that you will overcome because I am an overcomer and I help you. You will have difficult times, but I want you to still be at peace in amongst those difficult times, knowing that I have overcome the evil in this world. And you also will be able to do that through me. So we need that too. In this world, you will have tribulation, but I want you to have peace in the midst of that, knowing that I can bring victory over this battle. Whatever is going on in your life, God can bring victory in the end, but you have to stick with him. You have to persevere. Okay, and then First John 5, 4 through 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Son of God is God's child. And he says the only people that overcome this world are his children. He did this for his children, Esau, Lot, and Jacob. And he will do the same thing for his children who are born of the Spirit, which is the ones that believe in Jesus. That is all who believe in him, all the Christians. He will help you overcome this world. He will bring you victory through your faith in him. They had to place their faith in him too in order to win the victory. Their fathers refused to do that. They wouldn't place their faith in him. God said, go into this land and dispossess these people. You will win the battle. And their fathers said, I don't trust you. I can't go in. I'm too afraid. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be terrified. I don't want you to turn away from the battles that this world has for you because I am with you. I'm bringing you into these battles. And if I bring you into a battle, I will bring you victory. God is with his people. And that's what he's showing the Israelites and Esau and Lot's children. He's showing us this in the Old Testament so that we can see it in the New. So that we can see God brings victory to his children. Okay, and then the last verse I want to read you is in Luke 18, 1 through 8. This isn't a victory passage, but it shows us how to receive victory, what we do when we're in the midst of this battle. So this is Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. And it says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is Jesus telling the parable. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge. 
who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what this unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? So Jesus is telling them this parable about this woman who continues to go to this judge and ask for justice. And the judge doesn't care about her and he doesn't care about God. But he gives her justice because he's sick of her coming to him over and over. So he says, you know, just so this woman will shut up and leave me alone, I'm going to give her what she wants. And so he says, if a man that doesn't even care about someone will give her what she wants because she's persistent, how much more will God give to his people when they continually come to him begging him for justice? And so this is supposed to encourage us to pray to God, to always ask him for the things that we need and believe that he's able to deliver those things to us and that he will give them to us. If an unjust judge will give to a woman just because he's sick of listening to her, how much more will a just loving God give to his children when they continually ask him? So be persistent. Believe in him. Show him that you believe in him by continuing to say, God, I know you can do this for me, and I am asking you, please bring me justice. He says, how much more will God do that for his children? So don't give up, okay? Remember the things that God's already done for you. And if he's not won a battle for you, just look at his creation and see how much he must love you by giving you all of the things that he's given just the whole earth. And let the heavens declare his righteousness. Look at his laws. See how they've benefited you, how they've kept you from trouble, how they've protected you, how they've given you a good understanding of how to live and it's helped you in this life. Let those things testify of God if if he hasn't proven himself in some way through some battle. Let his forgiveness, his mercy towards you, when you know you don't deserve that, let that prove his love for you. And and let that help you trust in him through the things that you have to deal with in this life. And if he has helped you through a battle, big or small, then place your trust in him for the next battle. Have faith in the Lord. That's the real lesson that I want you to get from this. But. There's hard things in this. This whole passage about war is difficult. And so I can't just give you the lesson of God brings you victory as much as I want to do that because I know that some of you are having a difficult time with some of these things. You're having a difficult time with God hardening um, the king of Sihon's heart. You're having a hard time with that because maybe he was just going to let them pass through. 
Maybe the Israelites were going to say, hey, can we pass through your land? And he was going to say, yeah, sure, no problem. And then no one would have had to die. So why would God harden his heart? Some of you are having a difficult time with that. And then some of you are also having a difficult time with the fact that he killed everyone, men, women, children. No one was spared. And I don't want to leave this passage without talking about those things. So the first thing, God hardening the king of Sihon's heart. Maybe he was. Maybe he was going to let them through and they were just going to get to pass through this land with no problems. Maybe that is the case. But that is not what God wanted because these were not good people. This is the land of the Amorites. And God told Abraham, when he told him he was going to give them the land, he said, I will give you this land, but not yet. This is, I want to read you Genesis uh, 15, when God is explaining this to him. He says, your people will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after that, they shall come out with great possessions. That was uh, 1514. And then this is verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And your descendants will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So right now, at this time, when God is talking to Abraham, he has not allowed Abraham to have this land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But when his uh, descendants come back, they will have reached their peak of evil. That's what he's saying. So he says, I am right now, I'm allowing, I'm giving them chances for 400 years. But there's going to come a time where these people are irredeemable. And that time is now. And so maybe just because the king of, of Sihon feared his life and cared about preserving the land, he would have let them pass through. Maybe that is the case. But they're an evil people. They're irredeemable. Even though they may let the Israelites pass through, they're never going to believe in the Israelites' God. And they're always going to be against them. And if they ever become strong enough, they'll defeat the Israelites or, or continue to contend with them. And so that is why God hardens his heart, because he wants these people defeated, all of evil defeated. Go back to the scenario that I was talking about earlier where my son was saying, is this a good guy or a bad guy? And you look at the movies. The good guys always defeat the bad guys and the bad guys are defeated. Think about every single movie that you ever see whenever they wrestle the gun right away from the bad guy and they're holding it and they're deciding, am I going to kill this guy or am I going to give him mercy? And they're kind of trying to reason with him. And the bad guy's kind of trying to act like, oh, I'm not really a bad guy and I won't kill you if you just give me a break. What always happens? Always, when this good person hesitates, because they are a good person, and they hesitate, when the bad guy gets the chance, they wrestle the gun away from them. And they go right back to trying to kill the good guy which is what they were doing in the first place. Why the good guy had to wrestle the gun away from them. 
And I know that's a movie, but that's, that is what is in every movie because that is the human nature. The bad guy is the bad guy. Now, obviously there are good guys that do bad things. No question about that. We know this. That is why God gave them 400 years. But when there is a clear good guy and a clear bad guy, the bad guy has to be defeated. He will never be a good guy. Never. And that is the place where this land is now. Their iniquity is complete. They are irredeemable. They are evil to their core. And they might do something to preserve their own lives, just like that person that is pretending, oh, I won't hurt you if you just let me live. But as soon as you give them a tiny bit of mercy, they'll come right back at you because they're evil to their core. And that is why God did not allow him to just preserve his life because the evil needed to be eradicated. Even as a young child, you're always rooting for that. When we get older, we start to, oh, we don't want to do that. Maybe we can fix it. You know, all of that. From a very young age, kids just understand bad guy, good guy, good guy needs to defeat the bad guy. That's why every movie is like that. Because we really get that. Even though um, we want to be understanding. And again, I'm not talking about on an individual basis. Yes, on an individual basis, there are people that are good that do bad things. That's not what I'm talking about. When you go to war with an evil king, there's no mercy can be had for that, for that evil Hitler, for that evil Stalin. They were not going to change. And so that is why God said their iniquity is complete. The evil in that land needs to be eradicated. Now, that leads us to the next part of, okay, the king is evil. What about all of the people? You're going to kill everybody, men, women, children? Really? So I want to read you what God told the people about when they went into the land in Exodus 34, verses 10 through 17. It says, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have never been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So this is God talking to Moses, telling him, I'm going to do marvelous things in these nations that you go into. And it's something that you've never seen before. No one has ever seen. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you will eat of the sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and they make your sons whore after their gods. 
Okay, so what he's saying is when you get into this land, this land that I'm going to give you, this land of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, these people, every one of them, they worship other gods. And so you hear him say, whore after those gods. Be unfaithful to me and worship those gods. That's what that word means. We understand that. And so he says, you have to destroy everything that they used to worship. Everything. Because I don't want you to be tempted to use any of the items that they worship with to worship also. And I, and you can't leave their women alive because if you do, then what happens to them? In that day and time, those women couldn't take care of themselves. And so they had to have a husband. So who's going to marry them if you've killed all of their men? You. You're going to bring them in and they're going to marry your sons. And then they're going to tempt your sons to worship their gods because that's all they've ever known. They have worshiped these gods always. And providing that they've worshiped their gods, they're going to continue to worship their gods and they're going to drag your sons along with them. And then your sons are going to be unfaithful to me. And so God instructed them, don't make treaties with them. If you do, then they will continue to live. They'll continue to worship their gods and they will tempt you into that same practice. And then you will be unfaithful to them. And then why would God be faithful to them? Why would God give them victory? No reason. If they're unfaithful to God, then God has no reason to be faithful to them and give them victory and help them in the battles that they will face. And so he says, you cannot leave any of them alive. No, none of their men, none of their women, because they will marry your men and then get them to worship their gods. So you have to kill all of the people when you go to war with them. All of these people have been brought up in these traditions. This is all they know. So I want to read you several verses that confirm these types of things. The first one is found in Proverbs twelve twenty six, and it says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. So if you allow the wicked people to live, they will lead you astray. That is just the way it goes. When you go into a nation and they are inherently wicked, then you can't allow them to live. That's why God did what he did. And this is hard for us because we think the women and the children, they're innocent, right? That's what we see. They're innocent. They were just brought up in this. They don't know any better. They're innocent. But our version of innocence and God's version of innocence are different. And so that's what we need to understand. When we're looking at this from a spiritual perspective, this is a physical war being fought for spiritual reasons. And so on the spiritual level, we can understand that these people are not innocent. They worship other gods. They are evil. The gods of these other nations do not have the same rule as the Lord, our Lord God does. And they allow things that we would not. 
They let their people do evil things. These people sacrificed their children to these gods. They did horrible, horrible things. And so I want to show you several verses that explain who God sees as guilty and who God sees as innocent so that we can make this clear dividing line between evil and good, who needs to have victory and who needs to have defeat. Because that is what is happening here in in these passages and it is hard for us. And so we need to see it through God's eyes. So the first passage is in Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. This is the the end of of our lesson is us just unpacking this, understanding God's version of innocence and our version of innocence, and and then we'll end. So this is Romans 3, 21 through 26, and it says, Now the righteousness of God has been made has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are guilty. And he has shown his righteousness by sending Jesus. Now James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So this verse is saying everyone is guilty. You have at one point broken one law of the Lord. So every single person is guilty. We cannot be righteous apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what the Romans verse was saying, is that Jesus is the only way for us to be free from this guilt that is told to us in James 2.10. 1 John 1, 7-9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. There we go again. Jesus cleanses us from our sin. We're guilty apart from him. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. It is fair for him to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. And so... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we confess that and trust in Jesus, then we can become the righteousness that he gives. But if not, then we stand in our guilty state. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the doctrine of propitiation. And so we switch. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be our sin and suffer the consequence of that so that we could have his righteousness. He has switched with us. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. He suffers for that sin. And then we get to be seen as righteous. That is innocence in God's mind. That's the only way a person can be innocent is by receiving Jesus's righteousness. And the only way to receive that is to confess our sins and accept that he has paid the price for them. And so because these nations did not believe in God, they could not be innocent. Because they worshiped other gods, they were condemned. They couldn't believe in the salvation that would be prophesied to them. Did you know in the Old Testament, people could still believe in Jesus because God was prophesying him to them? Listen to what it says in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There are many, many more prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, but none of these people can can trust in Jesus as their savior because they don't even believe in God. And it says they never will. And this is what it makes them guilty. No matter what we see as guilt, God sees it different. John three sixteen through 21 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him isn't condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only son of God. That is these nations. They are condemned because they didn't believe in the name of the son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people that love darkness rather than light, their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does, but whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So those who Love, evil, stay in the darkness. That is these people. God says they're never going to come to the light. The The light bulb's never going to come on. They're never going to get it. They're never going to see me. They're never going to believe in my son. And so because of that, I want them gone because I don't want them to drag you away. I don't want them to pull you away and make you unfaithful to me. 
You are my chosen people and I want to preserve you. I want to preserve your innocence. When you have a child, you want to preserve their innocence, right? You want to keep them away from seeing the evil things and be dragged away by those things. And that is the same with God's children. He wants to preserve our innocence. And so he says, I don't want you to be tempted to be unfaithful to me. And so I need the evil people gone. Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, this is the only way to be innocent. The only way to be righteous. That is why God says, wipe the whole nation out. I know that this is difficult. (laughs) That's why I want us to understand where God is coming from. His desire was for the Israelites to live in a nation under him, untainted by all the rest of the people. And if they allowed them to live, then those people would eventually influence them. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go in and eradicate nations. I'm just trying to explain why God told them to do that. And just let us see that it does make sense. I would hope that we would be able to be influences to those people as opposed to them being influences to us. But God said, here, these people are evil. They're irredeemable. God knows who's irredeemable and who's not. And that's why he allowed that to happen. So anyway, I understand that that's difficult. We can't fully understand the ways of the Lord until we get to heaven, but I'm trying to at least help us not to just have a hard time with this and be able to focus maybe on the the real message that God gives victory to his children, that he reveals himself, he proves himself over and over again to us. And when we see what he is able to do, how much he loves us, and what he's able to do for us, that it will give us peace in the midst of our hardships and courage to keep going through and that we will persevere in our prayers and rely on him and that our faith will be strengthened knowing what he has done, what he can do for us in the future. So that's really the lesson that we want to get today. I hope that that you're able to accept that God has reason for what he does in war and move past that, not get hung up on that situation and be able to just remind yourself that God is with you in the battle, whatever that battle may be, now or in the future, and that you will have peace within it knowing that Jesus has overcome the evil of this world and that you will be able to continue to persevere and trust God to get you through to the other side. So 
that's the lesson today. I know it was long, but there was just too much in here. So I hope you were able to stick with me all the way through to the end. Next week, we'll continue with their journey. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. If you haven't gone to the website and gotten your free Bible study over Abraham, then go to livethroughjesus.com. Get your Bible study. Look at all the blog posts. There's a blog post that coincides with this lesson also. So go there and look at that if you so choose. And then I'll see you back next week. Thanks and have a good day.